Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mastering engineer and current president of the Audio Engineering Society, Jonathan Weiner. But first of all, there's something new in concert ticketing. It's called rush seating. And this is a result of a duo, Tegan and Sarah, who are very successful indie artists, might be under the radar, but they can sell out theaters, they can tour and mostly sell it out, and they have a thriving business. As a result, the secondary ticketing brokers descended upon their last tour. So Tegan and Sarah showed up to their sold-out show at the Balboa Theater in San Diego and found a mostly empty venue. Now, keep in mind, it was sold out. There were no tickets left. And yet, there weren't many people in the venue. The reason why the secondary ticket sellers bought all the tickets and then raised the prices. The original price is around $40, and it doubled and it tripled. And as a result, hardly anybody showed. And this happened a second night, and this happened a third night, and then it began to happen on other dates of the tour. So in order to overcome this, they did something that was pretty brilliant. They asked their fans to show up, and then they would fill all the empty seats with the basically pay-what-you-can donations to their foundation. So as long as you showed up, you could pay whatever you wanted, and it might be a couple of dollars, or it might be a couple of hundred dollars. But that money went to their foundation, and the seats were filled. As a result, those secondary ticket brokers kind of got taken because they bought the tickets for $40 and now they're going for $6 on StubHub. So rush seating might be something new and something that people can incorporate as a way to get around those secondary ticket resellers that we all dislike so much. I think the quote that best explains it is, if there's empty seats, let's put someone in them. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, I don't know if you're aware, maybe you were, maybe you're not, but there has been a big battle over Rosewood over the last couple of years. A UN council called the Convention of International Trade in Endangered Species, its abbreviated CITES, passed some rules in 2016 about Rosewood. And essentially what was happening is Chinese furniture manufacturers were ravaging Rosewood forests. So much so that Rosewood was on the verge of extinction. So what sites did is they established some rules. And as a result, every product that contained even a little rosewood needed a permit in order to cross an international border. And this required full documentation of the chain of custody all the way from the stump to the finished product. And that's for every piece of rosewood, as well as a certification that the wood was secured in accordance with the local laws and that all relevant fees and taxes were paid. So if you didn't have this license, the customs officials were authorized to confiscate your equipment. So just think of it like this. 
you're traveling with a guitar, and maybe it's a vintage guitar with the rosewood neck, and you show up at the border, and your guitar gets confiscated because you probably don't have this particular license because none exists because you can't actually determine where your rosewood came from. So when this happened, guitar makers and piano makers and woodwind makers, they began to press their wood suppliers to get that documentation for them. And it was hard for that to happen. So as a result, the global trade in guitars and woodwinds declined by 50% in 2017. And all of a sudden, these instruments would pile up in warehouses because they couldn't be shipped across the border. They might be confiscated. Then it got even worse because now you had musicians with expensive instruments that were afraid to travel. Prominent orchestras began to cancel their tours because they're worried that some priceless violins might be seized. Once again, you couldn't verify where this maybe century-old rosewood came from. So, of course, this was hitting the industry really hard. A coalition of guitar makers, including Fender, Taylor, Martin, and Paul Reed Smith, as well as NAM and the European Industry Association and several performer organizations, all blended together to get some sort of relief. And not only that, they were supported by customs offices from countries around the world. The reason why was it was just taking too many of their resources looking at something like this that took them away from something that was more important. But this was like David and Goliath. The music industry is so small as compared to everything else that no one thought that they would accomplish anything. But sites finally agreed and relaxed the rule. So now instruments with rosewood are now free to cross international borders. One of the reasons why is they made a really good case saying that musical instruments consume less than 1% of the yearly global rosewood harvest. So this industry was not threatening rosewood at all. Sites, unbelievably, agreed with them. And now everything has been relaxed and kind of back to normal. So hooray for the little guy because we finally won one and one that really counts. My guest today is Jonathan Weiner, Chief Mastering Engineer and President of M-Works Mastering in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Jonathan began his career as a mastering engineer in 1985 as the compact disc was becoming a reality, and he studied digital mastering with one of the pioneers of the field for five years before establishing M-Works Mastering. Like most mastering engineers, he has thousands of credits over a wide range of genres, including James Taylor, David Bowie, Aerosmith, Pink Floyd, Nirvana, and Ross and Roland Kirk, just to name a few. And he's mastered what is believed to be the longest CD ever at 80 minutes and 32 seconds. He is currently also serving as the president of the Audio Engineering Society and as education of director at Isotope, as well as being a professor at Berklee College of Music. During the interview, we spoke about the time it takes to develop mastering engineer ears, identifying audio and musical trends, his mission as president of AES, and much more. I spoke with Jonathan via Skype as he was vacationing at Martha's Vineyard. Let's talk about how you got into the business. You were a French horn player, right? That's right. Yeah, I started out as a musician, sort of a, grew up in the quintessential musical family um, and uh, was exposed to, you know, many musical universes as a young person growing up in New York City. Uh, a lot of atonal classical music in the house and WABC and KCK some and 
the, you know, every weekend I was listening to, you know, what Michael Jackson was doing next and Sly and the Family Stone. And, and, um, I sort of filled in all of the dots in between from jazz to every version of rock and, um, got a degree in French horn performance, but really my degree was in, um, electronic mistreatment of acoustic instruments. <laughs> that, that was what I, I specialized in, um, and, uh, at, at, at Vassar college. So I worked a lot with analog tape and with old modular synthesizers and poorly placed microphones in front of instruments and made compositions and recordings. And then I then and this was uh, I had a, a subversive sort of plot going or whatever you want to call it. Um, I was the um, uh, sorry, the not music director, but the. Um, uh, the other role at the radio station in Poughkeepsie program director, <laughs> program director. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Program director. Um, and so I used to make all these recordings and then play them over the air, uh, during drive time in Poughkeepsie, New York. <laughs> anyway, but that's, that's sort of the genesis of my interest in, in music and sound and technology. It, it came up through, um, musical expression and musical forms. Most of us that are in the audio side started as in the music side. And I'm curious how you went from one to the other. Because for some, it's a gradual gradual change, a gradual transition. For others, it's pretty instant. Which was it for you? You know, yeah, that's actually, it's very interesting to think about. My first exposure to the idea of the sort of the technical side was when I was listening to the music of Brian Eno or and, and at the same time, I had a, a teacher in high school who plugged a, a pickup into his mouthpiece and ran his trombone through an ARP 2600. Um, and I was listening to Stockhausen. So, you know, there was like this immediate I mean, for me, electronics and studio craft was simply an expression or an extension of the musical vocabulary. Um, so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't think about recording as this separate activity that needed to get married to the music. It just seemed like it grew out of an extension of modern music making. Like the studio was, you know, for me, an instrument um, that we were using to create musical recordings, to create expressions, and to create, you know, the the art. And so, um, so I guess. You know, once I was exposed to that, I, it just grabbed me instantly. I, you know, I certainly had plenty of experience as a performer with orchestras and on stage playing acoustic instruments. Um, but, but really the thing that got me excited was the electronics. You're interesting in the fact that you did have the acoustic background. For many of us, it was like for me, for instance, it was electric from the start. What that means then is sometimes it's hard to get to wrap your arms around acoustic instruments and what they're supposed to sound like because you don't have that much experience. But you did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And I think I think that's been really useful um, for me to understand things about the nature of, of sounds in space. But I'll, I'll flip that around and say I always envied electric guitarists because they... It, by definition, had to play around with amplifiers and tone controls and pickups and then maybe stomp boxes. For me, I was I was jealous. I was like, all I've got is this horn. This is like, this is not okay. I got to figure out some way to, to sort of join this other much more interesting or varied activity. But you did when it comes to synthesis, and that's what so many horn players have done. I, I can think of three or four off the top of my head 
very good horn players that never basically said, oh, I'm going to give that up, but said electronic music is a place where I think I can fit really well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you're saying that, three people immediately came to my mind. Actually, Miles Davis, in an interesting way, I think kind of fits that category uh, when he went into electronic music and fusion. Uh, John Hassel, I don't know if you've ever heard his work, a trumpet player. He developed really an instrument that involved a certain kind of um, mistreatment and made some records with Brian Eno. And uh, and then Mark Isham oh, yeah. is somebody who also comes to mind, who's a trumpet player, wonderful trumpet player. Um, but I think he's, you know, been most successful probably with his uh, work with film music and, and the sort of emotional ambience he builds into his work, you know, through electronics. Sure. Okay, so... Then you get into the studio more. Did you you find that you were recording more and mixing more and then being a musician less? That Did it happen gradually or, or was it one of those things? Was it a conscious decision you were going to go that way? Yeah, it was a pretty conscious decision. I think the minute I realized that I could really fully invest in studio craft and collaborate with musicians on their work, I got really turned on by that. You know, for better or worse, I never really thought that I was going to light the the world on fire with my musical performances. And and also, it's a very personal thing, you know, when yeah. you put yourself out there as a musician. And I think I was there, there was a, a way that the studio offered a little protection. I could sort of protect that personal music making space and still invest in something that that really for me was you know, it's kind of my first language, you know, my first love. And so um, so I got involved in the studio and started it was i would say the last eight to ten years of analog the sort of viability of of pure analog so i got started with you know four track machines and then eight track half inch machines and and then two inch 16 and two inch 24 and uh, learned about managing large format consoles and big acoustic spaces and um, sort of the traditional studio craft where was this at jonathan well i it's interesting. I, I started really diving into that. I, I had done a little bit of work with analog tape and editing and mixing in school at Vassar. But then I ended up at the recording workshop in Chillicothe, Ohio. Oh, yeah. And I was I, they offered a, a job teaching. And I just thought, well, this is amazing. I can just spend all of my time talking about what I'm doing, which means I have to learn what I'm doing well enough to be able to articulate it and spending all of my time experimenting and demonstrating. And then during the off hours going in and making records with musicians. So I worked with a bunch of musicians um, in and around, not just Southern Ohio or Southeast Ohio, but also uh, Columbus and some from Cincinnati and did a lot. That's where I really shedded and, and kind of learned the technology and the craft. And then your interest in digital music got you into mastering. Am I right? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, MIDI was sort of the first. MIDI was a big deal um, in the mid nineteen eighties. When we talk about digital music, I think MIDI was the first thing that changed a lot of things about the way music was made and about you know the extension of the musical vocabulary. And um, so I spent a lot of time learning the sort of the, the about the possibilities that that afforded. And then uh, right around 1985, late 85, early 86, I was offered a job in a mastering studio 
um, at a studio called Northeastern Digital Recording, which was started by a guy named Toby Mountain. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Toby was, he, he sort of just came into the business at that point and just full on embraced mastering for digital. And he kind of completely circumvented analog altogether. Um, and it was a very interesting move, uh, which gave him he, the possibility of aligning himself with other people who were willing to completely embrace this new format and these new technologies. Um, and one of the alliances that we made at the studio was with this young company called Rikodisc. Um, and they were sort of, you know, embraced all CDs. I think they were, you know, right at the time that indie labels back then meant something different than, than it has for the last 20 years. It still was a pretty significant undertaking um, to become a record label. Um, and they went for it and said, we're just putting out CDs and we're going to find artists who are interested in this sort of the new platform as well. And um, which meant that they struck deals with people like Frank Zappa, who was very sort of technologically forward thinking. Uh, David Bowie, who was interested in kind of the, the possibility of reinvention in this new format um, uh, and other household names. And suddenly I was working in this all digital facility, learning about this somewhat fragile new technology and, um, and working on these really cool projects with artists who were my heroes. And uh, it, it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. At that point, it felt like, you know, somebody put their foot on the accelerator pretty hard. Um, Cause I've been, you know, I've been doing this thing that I loved, but I'm sure it's relatable for most. You're never sure if you're sort of going to get to that point where you're going to feel like a success. You know, how am I going to make this work? I'm going to work 35 hours a day, you know, 4 million hours a week doing this thing I love, but am I ever going to get paid? Am I, am I going to be able to call this a career? Um, and that moment was just so um, helpful for me in terms of, you know, starting a career in a way. Now, all that being said, you had a big background in terms of, or a, a, a wide background in terms of listening to all types of music, performing all types of music, which is great for a mastering engineer. You bet. But I've talked to many mastering engineers, and one of the questions I always ask is, when did you get to the point where you felt, okay, I think I got this. I know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's something that happens gradually. I remember when I first started working uh, with Toby for the first year, year and a half, I was the QA, QC engineer. And I, I was, you know, just listening, just checking, getting educated about what records sounded like, and, and also just kind of backing him up and making sure that everything was was in good shape. And I remember the, the day that I, the time had come to do my first session. And I, you know, pulled off the headphones, you know, sat down in, in front of the console and, and the large speakers. And I was like, oh my, I'm not so sure about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna do some experiments, but I didn't feel like I had all of the experience internalized that one needs to be a foil against which we measure the decisions we're about to make. And so, um, it took a while. I, I think it took me somewhere, I'm going to make up some numbers that I think are reasonable, like two or three years before I felt pretty darn good about my ability to um, manage the overall sort of tonal balance of records. And I think it took me five to seven years to feel like I really understood compression. 
and managing the, the those tools. And then, of course, there, you know, you're always learning. And and about six years after I started, or seven years, we got a hold of digital limiters, and that changed everything all over again. And you sort of had to to learn a new facet of the craft and a new way of thinking about the aesthetics of the music in this new technical, you know, sort of capable in the within the context of this technical capability. Um, so it, it took a while. Uh, so you put that all together, and I would say. By the time I was seven to ten years in, I was feeling like, okay, you know, I'm I'm going to be quick at at hearing your record, developing a sense of direction, implementing something, and I'm going to get ninety percent of the way there reliably pretty quickly. But but you know, it was a long journey to get there, and that's typical of what I hear from most mastering engineers. They'll say that's the time frame. So you know, it's funny. Ken Scott, who's a, a friend, and I co-wrote a book with him. And one of my heroes. Yeah, everybody's hero. One of the stories that he always related was when he was growing up in the EMI system. And before you became an engineer, they sent you to the mastering facility. And he said the first thing, and nobody really tells you what to do. They just say, go and do it. And he says the first thing everybody does is they crank up the EQ, the high and and the low end. And then after a while, it starts to sink in. Well, maybe we really don't have to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking with um, a woman named Rachel Alina, who I teach with over at Berklee College of Music. And we were talking about exactly this. And she was saying that she thinks all of the students should have to go through a short form mastering course before they start mixing. And I think that kind of mirrors this experience that you're describing where, you know, when you get started, if you, if you sort of look at things through the lens of what's going to be delivered to the end listener, you learn a great deal about, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what you should or shouldn't do, uh, and what records sound like. Um, and you're you're training your ear and your brain in that context. You're not just listening casually. Um, and I think it's an interesting idea. We had a long conversation about it. And we're not done. Well, again, it's establishing the reference point, which I always thought was really important and very difficult to get if you're doing it on your own and you're at home because that's a moving target all the time. One of the good things is if you're working under someone, they're they're helping you establish that reference point, which happens a lot faster i think and hearing what's good and what's bad next to one another yep absolutely i know if i could give one thing to all of your listeners all of my students it would be the you know sort of our version of uh public service you know to be able to get a stipend to just sit down and listen for a year before you go to work just you know with with that sort of clear focus of like okay i'm listening because i want to understand what do records sound like? Listening through the record in many ways. You're not listening to the, the song per se, you're listening into it. That's right. That's a hard skill to learn. Yeah. And then it's hard to unlearn, I've found, where, where <laughs> now instead of enjoying what you're listening to, you're analyzing it all the time and it's really hard to pull a plug. Well, I guess... My experience is that I went through a phase like that, but I'm pretty good at parsing the experience mm. at this point. I, I And I, I feel like I can listen in two modes at once. I can absolutely love records that sound horrible um, because I love the music and I love the performance. There is this little voice in the back of my head that says, 
but it, it probably could have sounded even better. Yeah, yeah, right, right, of course. <laughs> but, but you know, but I can, I can love the music, absolutely. Uh, but it took a while to get there. Yeah, sure. Well, okay, as a mastering engineer then, so much is changing right now. Yeah. Much of it under the radar, but now we're seeing that we're getting a more dynamic range because it doesn't matter if you really squash something anymore and CDs sort of going away. I think there's a slight resurgence we just heard this year, but you know, again, that whole thing is changing. The whole approach is changing to the way it used to be much for the better. Yeah. You know, I'm having trouble these days identifying individual trends, partly because the market is so splintered and fractured. There are so many different outlets and so many different ways that people come in contact with music. It used to be that, you know, one of the advantages of vinyl or CD or even sync, you know, uh, iTunes or the larger distributors in lossy audio formats was that it, it created this kind of benchmark. And so we could talk about trends. We could say, oh, well, we're noticing that everything on the iTunes rock, you know, playlists have come up 3dB or have gone down 3dB or whatever. And, um, it's hard to say that these days. I, I, um, I'm on a couple of uh, web boards um, that are, you know, have several thousand members uh, on Facebook and other social media. And in those arenas, people are talking about how suddenly there's a spike in level again. And yet I, I'm talking to you and you're talking about how, you know, with this awareness of loudness normalization, that's becoming more and more the default in Spotify or Tidal or now Amazon Music has it on by default, um, that the levels seem to be coming down, at least in terms of how music is presented. And hopefully this has an influence on the aesthetics of music production. But, you know, we've got all these different trends all happening at once. And it's, it's, it's hard for me to make this sort of single statements like everything's changing in the following way. And I think that is a change. Yeah. Yeah, I think this this diversity of of experiences and listening um, is just kind of dizzying. Now, on the other hand, I just visited a mastering engineer friend, and um, he was laughing. He says, "Look at this," and he plays me something, and and there's red overs all over the place. Yeah. He said, "Aren't you going to fix those?" He says, "No, nobody cares." They don't mind. He says, that, "As a matter of fact, if I fix them, they may actually send it back to me." <laughs> so yeah six one half dozen the other i guess i guess i fix them i mean i feel like here's here's my take on that particular phenomenon um if you let those overs persist i mean I, you know there, there's a kind of an edge that comes from letting letting a little clipping happen on the output of a device when music is playing right yeah um, and one could make the argument that's, oh, I kind of like the edge. But here's the problem. It's like, which version of that distortion do you want? Do you want it to be on your Android phone or your Apple laptop or your Windows this? I mean, every single device has a different sonic signature mm. to it in terms of how it behaves and how it handles uh, elevated levels. And so I, I just feel like I lose, I'm losing control over the artistic vision here because I'm not really sure what's going to happen on playback. So I've been a big fan of leaving a little margin and then going after the aesthetic 
of what I'm trying to create a little bit harder. If somebody wants, I mean, there, there are ways of getting a little bit of clipping into a, um, you know, through the use of some of the DSP tools we have into a master and still not have over levels. Speaking of DSP tools, so you're in charge of education at Isotope. And that company is in the forefront of so many different things here, plug-in-wise. When did you start with them? I, I, you have, and again, you have a big background, especially in digital music, digital audio right from the beginning. So it seems like a great marriage. When did you start with them? So I started, uh, my relationship with the company started about 15 years ago. And at that time, it was casual and... Um, just being available to the the uh, young, ambitious, smart, caring people who were starting this company who didn't have that much experience in the industry. And that was both an advantage for them in some ways because it allowed them to imagine things differently, um, but also there were some gaps that I could help to fill in. And so I, I did, it, initially it was, I guess you could call it consulting. And then I started to do some technical writing and then some presenting and um, and at this point, my work has evolved to the point where I'm involved to some extent in product development and consulting internally to the teams about some of the, the developments that we're creating in-house. And I also do work with the content team and make videos on behalf of um, educational videos in collaboration with the company is probably the best way to put it. Um, but, um, you know, it turns out that my experience and my knowledge in the domain has been useful in a whole bunch of different ways to the company, and it's really fun for me to be able to be involved. What I find interesting about Isotope, they're very in-depth tools, and you could really go down a rabbit hole if you're not careful. You can say that for a lot of digital apps, but with Isotope especially, I think. But they have pretty good UIs where that doesn't happen, if you don't want it to. Well, thank you for saying that. It's something that we have struggled with mightily. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's sort of two different competing ideas. One is give the user all of, of the capability and all of the options so that they can create whatever outcome they might want by using all the different parameters available versus this idea of somebody just trying to do something creative, give them a single tool to do it. You know, if you need to tighten down a screw, you know, get a Phillips head screwdriver and it's just one turn and you're done. And, you know, there are examples, especially in the world of sort of, of analog. Um, and we've tried to replicate that, not we, not necessarily isotope, but I think we as a, an industry, we've tried to replicate that idea of, you know, you look at an LA two way, I mean, how many controls are there on that thing or an 1176? Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. Um, one of the disadvantages, I will say, is that when you have controls that are extremely simple, you are there's usually a requirement that you have to macro together a whole bunch of different changes. And that means you're not going to be able to finesse the changes if you don't want, you know, the harmonic distortion that comes with the gain to, to quite the extent that you're given it with a single knob. I mean, that's it. You have to go out and buy another thing in order to get the thing that you want. So, you know, I think one of the values that infuses the product development for Isotope is let's break break the tools down into their sort of largest grain, but, you know, useful parts um, so that people really can finesse 
the outcomes. But try to create a UI that that allows them to sort of look at the, the big picture first and then dive deeper if they want to. But it's a hard line to walk. It's a real challenge. What do you think needs the most explanation? Oh, boy. Wow. Nobody's ever asked that question before. You mean, are, do you mean in the, in using the products? Yes. Is there something that keeps on coming up where you, you feel that, well, this is something that we have to explain because maybe they're not going to understand? Yeah, probably. I mean, and this, this is a problem that's somewhat unique to Isotope. The thing that we have to explain is how to prepare yourself to make, to get the best benefit out of some of the newest tools that we're building. Um, I'll give you an example. We, we've built a mix, mix assistant. And it's, it's a really interesting idea for, you know, to be able to lay out a session, hit a button, and have a machine give you a starting point at, that gives you um, groups already set up. Wow. So, you know, all your vocals and all your drums and whatever are, are already tagged together and just gets you kind of a rough, rough balance and you take it from there. For some people, it, it's not necessarily that interesting, but for many people, it, it's it's a sort of a good time saver and a good kickstart, and also can maybe stimulate some some uh, creative thinking because it's like, well, you've given me this thing, but I don't like that. Actually, what I want to do is this. For for a lot of people, when you start mixing, you have to first sort of get a balance and then react to your own balance. So, I mean, it's it's an it's interesting technology. But to date, because we're a plug-in company and not a, a DAW company, we have to build a workflow that requires you to instantiate at least a lightweight plug-in on every channel. So that right there, and then and then to sort of manage the expectations or to, to try to transmit to the users, the purpose of this is not to get you your finished mix. You know, th- that kind of communication, you know, needs to be built in somewhere so that people aren't disappointed with it and so that they can find it useful. Um, and we, we struggle with that. You know, there's some other more simple things like um, we have this master assistant and we have some choices that the user can make. And if you choose, for instance, if you choose uh, streaming as a choice in the master assistant, it'll set up an initial state in ozone with the output set to minus one DBFS, the output of your final stage limiter. And, you know, when people look at that, sometimes they're like, what are you doing? Like, what's that? You know, if they, if they hover over the, the fader, they'll get a tooltip that tells them something about it. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that there's some intelligent thinking built into the tool, but people aren't necessarily just going to get it just like that. Yeah, if you don't know anything about mastering, that would be confusing. I could see yeah. exactly what's happening there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm the education director, so it's all my fault. but you know again there's so much to learn here and of course i'm in the education side on another part of it and i find that all the time i have to repeat the same things over and over it's like well didn't i just do this last year (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah we need it again because the same questions keep on coming up and a lot of times they're from people that you think, well, you should know this because you've been in a business for quite a while. Again, I think a, a lot of it has to do with our business is so wide. And if you want, you can silo yourself in just one little part of it. 
and be completely unaware to everything else. And that's what happens to a lot of people. It does until suddenly you have to change. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I, I just, um, I created a video of a conversation with Sylvia Massey yeah. this last summer. And I love Sylvia. She's, she's this wonderfully, you know who she is. Yeah, of course. She's yeah. wacky. She's creative. She's fantastic. She's a wonderful ambassador. I think for people who are passionate about music and music engineering about two years ago, she started a journey moving into the box. She had managed to resist it and to not have to do it. But finally the time had come. It was like, I have to figure out my workflow. How do I migrate what I'm doing into this, you know, into that other technology, that other world. And we were having a conversation just about levels and how do you think about levels? And I mean, you you have worked enough in analog to know that you know the the concept around level is is very specific, having to do with noise and nonlinearity and distortion and you know all of that stuff. And um, and you look at it like 30, 32 bit floating point mix engine. You know, like now she was hearing things where she was putting levels where she used to put them, and she didn't like what she was hearing. The the technology was behaving differently. And, you know, to her credit, she's like, tell me everything about this. I need to understand how to get the results I wanted. But you could see it was just like this big mental shift that was required. But the funny thing about that is that concept has changed even within the digital lifetime, where when we're back in the 8-bit world, it was closer to the analog where you wanted to fill up all those 8 bits just so you didn't have noise. That's right. And then, of course, as we get more bits, we don't have to worry so much about that. Yep, exactly. That's right. And you can just assume it's going to change again. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about AES. So you're the new president. Congratulations. Thank you very much. No one would take that job on unless, because it's it's an intense <laughs> job. It's not to be taken li- lightly, and you're certainly not. But no one does that unless they have a mission in mind. So what's yours? Yeah. So first of all, I, I will say it's a team, man. <laughs> I'm not. I'm. I'm not sort of alone making decisions or um, uh, having to figure things out. And it's 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 a very big tent, and it's an international organization. So, you know, I, I'm not going to understand what people in in Germany need in the same way that our German constituency does, and all of that. But. Um, I will also say that right now the group is made up of people I really enjoy working with, and that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about it. So my agenda, there, there are two things. Um, one is the notion of diversity. Um, you know, we, we live in a world where music is made globally by more different people in different places, in different ways than ever before. And I, and I would like to be sure that AES represents that diversity. So whether it's around gender or whether it's around geography or language or genre or even technology, um, that we make sure that we are representing the world that we live in. Um, it's very easy to get kind of distracted by the bright, shiny object, which was, you know, making the Steely Dan record or the, the things that were the famous records that were made in a certain kind of audio engineering paradigm. 
Um, and while I think we, we, we love talking about those things, and we love learning from the people who made those records, we have to create a, a greater sense of diversity and inclusion um, in the organization. So that's, that's one of my two sort of passions in taking this on. Um, and we have a good diversity and inclusion um, committee now that's working within AES around conferences and conventions and programming. Um, and, and we're also partnering with WAMCON and with Soundgirls. And so, so that's thing A. Thing B, oh wait, I have to say one more thing. At the convention, and that may have already happened by the time anybody hears this, but we've got, we're going to have a, um, a mini track focused on hip hop and our, uh, modern R&B production, one on electronic instrument design, an audio builders workshop that's about satisfying the maker's sort of appetite, electronic dance music, um, you know, immersive audio. I mean, so we're, we're sort of creating spaces to for, for our community to express the things that they want to express rather than try to shoehorn everybody into this sort of single monolithic idea. Um, so that's that's already really satisfying, and I think we're we're um, we're doing some really good work there. The second thing is partnering with industry, um, and I think we we've spoke about this not so long ago. Years ago, uh, manufacturing around audio was really centered around hardware, and it was large console manufacturers and speaker manufacturers, and um, that was and and in those days. Uh, the AES was a place where the manufacturers would show up. Uh, it was the place to connect with users and to connect with standards committees and to connect with research. And, you know, product development touched AES. Um, and I think AES is a meaningful place where manufacturers can find talent and they can find ideas and they can find people who want want things from them and want to give them money. So I, I feel as if, um, we've lost a little bit of that over time, and we're working to to reestablish a connection with the modern version of industry. Um, and industry, in this case, you know, who's building a lot of the modern audio tools, whether it's for distribution um, or for music making. And in no small part, we've got research teams working for Google and Microsoft and Apple. Um, and we're seeing them start to come more into the AES and be more interested, either because we're a place where there is talent, um, but also because, you know, our users or the people, our members are using these tools. And, you know, we're, when we talk about music distribution and best practices and so on, we're a place that they can find um, very efficiently uh, a wide range of well-informed voices uh, that they can use as focus groups and so on. So this, again, at the convention this year, we've got Amazon coming to talk about their new platform. Mm. We've, got, we've got Microsoft, who sponsored an immersive audio uh, conference last year. We're doing another one with them. Um, you know, we, th this is the kind of relationship that I would like to foster. Um, because I think that the people who know most about making recordings and about audio engineering are really the best people to be in an advisory position. To industry, and I, and so, I want to build that bridge. You know, I want to recapture that. I didn't realize that actually 
the second part of what you're talking about was happening. I always felt that there was a fairly close communication. It always seemed that way. And I didn't realize that, that, had, that there's been some separation, actually, between manufacturing and, and the association. Well, I mean, there, I don't want to overstate it, but I think that we could do better. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, we can do more together. You know, I, I actually think, I haven't really thought this all the way through, so I might say Command Z at the end of it. Um, but I think with the advent, or Control Z for Windows users out there, I think that with the advent of lossy audio in the marketplace, there was a little bit of a disconnect. And because that brought about so many changes around workflows and distribution and monetizing music, and it, you know, it upset the uh, record label Apple Cart. Um, and I feel as if in the, you know, maybe 20 years ago or so, we lost touch in a way. And I feel that that's, um, that's some, uh, sort of a fracture that, that we could do a better job healing at this point. And so I think actually one of the things that's happening that's exciting is that there are technology companies who are now not so young who are starting to come in and recapture some of that energy. And I will name Isotope and I will name Ableton and I will name, you know, there are companies that are now bringing new technological paradigms for producing audio and working with audio that, that are not the sort of the biggest players um, that are beginning to populate that sort of mid-level, mid-size company that, that, and they're viable and exist in the world of audio production. Um, so I think that may be part of what's making this moment also feel especially exciting to me. What do you think the biggest challenge is for AES? Yeah, how? Uh, I think the biggest challenges are how to stay in touch with people. Mm. You know, keeping people's attention is hard. Getting in front of people when we're so spread out is hard. So how to how to establish and maintain meaningful connections with people and have people sort of realize the value that comes from being connected with the membership. So, you know, it's when you go to a convention and you're walking down an aisle and you see Jimmy Douglas and George Massenberg and, you know, even fill in the blank, you know, um, then it's easy to understand. And then you see, you know, some friends that you hadn't seen for 15 years showing up. And I mean, anybody who's actually able to attend a convention, I think recognizes what I'm talking about, but that's not possible for uh, people who live in easily, you know, in the Midwest of the U S or in South America, although there's some strong chapters in South America um, in certain cities, or, you know, we don't really have, any chapters in Africa, or um, we've got some burgeoning efforts in China, but, you know, sort of creating that sense of connection and maintaining that, um, I think that's the big challenge. We've got a lot of modern tools for it, but there's a lot of noise in our lives, you know, so how do you sort of cut through that and make sure people know you're there? One of the problems that I've seen, but I think is being rectified, was getting younger members involved. And, and actually, I, lately, there's been a strong move that way, so I think it's changing. But for the longest time, that wasn't a priority. 
And I think the, the organization suffered because of that. Yeah, I think that's correct. I agree with you. Um, we have um, extremely uh, vibrant uh, student chapters all over the globe. Um, and one of the challenges I think that we have connected with that is how do we how do we foster those relationships as students graduate from school and they're sort of in that first three to five year period, if they remain in audio, figuring out you know what they're going to do and they're figuring out how they're going to eat or how they're going to you know sort of make the hustle work. Um, so that's that's something we are actively thinking about, whether it's a you know different membership sort of fee and class or providing the kinds of programming that those people, are hungry for and being a source of opportunities for that. You know, I got to name John Crivet, yeah. who's just been such a champion of exactly what you're talking about. And he's done so much good, um, really out of love for the audio engineering society and our community. Um, so I, I just want to thank him over and over again. He does a spectacular job. It's true. He's so active and he's constantly reaching out. He's constantly posting things that would be of, of great interest, I think. Yeah. There's a fellow named Cesar Lamstein in Uruguay who's kind of like the John Crivet of South America. Who's, I mean, amazing. He's all over the continent and he's just doing incredible work with student chapters down there. So it's great. Yeah. Okay, last question. What's the best piece of business advice that... Maybe you received from somebody or you learned along the way. <laughs> well, raise your rates. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's so, it's so hard to do it. And it's, it's funny. I talk to my students a lot about it. They're, they're very confused about like, how do I charge for my work? Should I work for free? And, um, and I think everybody probably, again, recognizes this. It's like if you raise your rates from 40 bucks an hour to 60 bucks an hour, you know, am I going to get, am I suddenly going to lose all my clients? It turns out that within reason, you will get paid in, in, a, in a sense according to how you value your own work. Yeah. And um, I think that there's, you know, there, there are times in one's career where you really have to look hard at that and, and take that hard leap. You can find out more about Jonathan at mworks.com. That's m-works, W-O-R-K-S, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or Go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>